Well, today is certainly a great day with the emphasis on certainly a great day because we are going to uh, conclude our study of the gospel of certainty. Uh, and that would be the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. And uh, we're going to conclude it, according to my count, uh, 68 weeks later. And uh, it's awesome. So glad. I kind of want to start John next, but we won't. Um, it's the gospel of certainty. We're going to conclude it, conclude it today. And so you can turn to Luke chapter 24, but we would call it the gospel of certainty because in chapter one, uh, Luke uh, makes it very clear that the person he's writing for, he's writing for an individual, uh, some sort of dignitary, some sort of educated person, uh, most excellent Theophilus, uh, he is referred to as, and he wants to give him enough detail, enough of the historical detail, um, which is detailed, so that his uh, understanding of who Jesus is could be a true and genuine understanding, so that most excellent Theophilus uh, can have certainty. So it's the gospel of certainty. Uh, he wants him, and by extension us, to believe in Jesus and not have uh, phantom faith uh, or fantasy faith, but to actually trust in Jesus who is the historic person, the one who actually was born uh, into the human race, the one who actually lived uh, on this soil, the one who actually was crucified, the one who actually was raised from the dead bodily, the one who actually, as we'll see today, ascended into heaven before eyes to see, physically, actually. Again, so we wouldn't have faith in faith, we wouldn't have faith in a phantom, we wouldn't have faith in fantasy, uh, we would actually have faith in Jesus Christ, um, born in Bethlehem. Grew up in Nazareth. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do today. The ascension of Jesus. That's certainly a good thing to talk about because how often do we talk about the ascension? Uh, I don't talk about the ascension that often. By implication, we do because we talk about Jesus being in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Uh, but I could count on one hand how many times I've heard a sermon on the ascension. I wonder how many of you have ever heard a sermon on the ascension. I know I've preached at least two sermons on the Ascension because uh, I have preached those sermons uh, on the Mount of Olives really close to Bethany where he ascended from the dead, but they were more like devotionals. What's the big deal? Why is the Ascension a big deal? Why is it important? Uh, why is it vital? Why could there be no Christianity without the Ascension of Jesus? Super critical, super important. And uh, we don't typically have holidays for it. You know, our kids, 40 days later, he ascended. So my kids, you know, I, I didn't either now that we don't call it Christmas break anyway. So, of course, they wouldn't have ascension break. Um, we would just call it something weird. I don't know. But, but I doubt kids have ever been out of school for ascension break. Um, if there's no ascension... The resurrection actually isn't very significant. I say that with complexity, and I don't even want to say that. It's all important, and the ascension is vital, is what I should say to stay on safe ground. <laughs> Let's go ahead and look, and we'll look at implications as we go. It's safe for 
preachers to say less than more, and uh, most preachers don't, including this one. So let's go ahead and look at chapter 24, verses 50 to 53, and we'll look at details along the way. It says in verse 50, then he, referring to Jesus, again, Luke 24, 50, then he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, or in the region of Bethany, you could even translate it, in the area of Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Bethany is, sometimes it's even referred to as the Mount of Olives because the Mount of Olives is going to be a bigger area. So if you're standing on the Mount of Olives, some of you were just not too long ago in February, if you're standing on the Mount of Olives and you're looking to the west and you're looking, therefore, over Jerusalem, you could see the temple uh, and you could see what Jesus would have seen when he was there on the Mount of Olives. And then behind you to the east you would see Bethany, which is part of the Mount of Olives region, okay? So very close. All of this is close, walking distance. And so Bethany, again, is just to the east of Jerusalem, up and over the hill, uh, compacted. Everything is there. Jesus on the triumphal entry would have been going into the city this way, uh, through Bethany. And now we have the triumphal departure, uh, because he is going to depart in Bethany. So just with that in mind, locale-wise, it's all very close. Uh, you can essentially see the temple and all that happened there. Our gospel account started in the temple. It's going to end in the temple. It's all in the same region. And so again, they're in Bethany, and there he lifts up his hands and he blesses them. He blesses his disciples. Verse 51 then says, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Before we skip the blessing part, and he does mention it a couple of times, and we start talking about the ascension, um, maybe it would be good for us just to uh, theologize a little bit here and, and consider what it would mean to be blessed by Jesus. Sometimes when I write an email, um, not all the time, I used to do it more, but I, and if I'm writing to a Christian, I would say, you know, blessings. Just like a nice, sincerely, I wish the best for you, you know, it's a better version of good luck, you know, may God bless you, um, blessings, Pat. But there's a huge difference between me saying that to you and Jesus blessing his disciples. So if he's saying, may the Lord bless you, well, that's encouraging, it's nice that it comes from Jesus. And in, he, he is essentially saying, you know, may, may God be with you. May God be on your side. May God uh, give you good things. But we're theologizing here because we're talking about Jesus. And when Jesus wishes something for someone, what happens? It happens. Okay, you want to use a big $5 word? His blessings would be effectual blessings. Effective. It works. Again, I remind you, remember when Peter, who, you know, is kind of a train wreck, I had to look at my, my friend who works for Union Pacific when I said that, because he always says, don't say train wreck. Anyway. <laughs> I'm kind of feisty about it these days. <laughs> Peter is a spiritual train wreck in so many ways, but Jesus encourages Peter by telling him that he prays for him. And that's where I pointed out to you before, you want to know the difference between Peter and Judas. There's not much of a difference. 
But Jesus effectually prays for Peter, and so Peter will end up persevering. And I'm going to draw your mind uh, upon that same reality here. When Jesus blesses his disciples, many of whom are going to be martyred, they're effectually blessed. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principality, nothing can keep them from being used by God to accomplish his will and ultimately being safe and sound. It's just fascinating to think about. You know, James says that the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Jesus is perfectly righteous. Whatever he asks the Father, it's done. It's awesome. He's blessing his disciples effectually. It's going to happen. They're going to persevere to the end. And it will end well for them. It's cool to think about. Whatever he wishes for, quote unquote, is, is ultimately going to be reality. That's encouraging. It's encouraging too because we're going to see uh, that Jesus claims all believers. And he intercedes for all believers. Effectually. Effectively. So what does it mean to ascend? says he parted from them. Your translation might say he, he ascended, and the reality is he, he ascended. What does it mean to ascend? Well, well, I walked up the stairs, right? I ascended up onto the platform, onto the stage. So it's the opposite of descending. If you climb the ladder, you ascend the ladder. I mean, it's just pretty basic, right? We know what it means. It means to go up. But then you put it in a, in a form, that's informal context, put ascending in a formal context, and now we're talking about moving not just up, but actually moving to significance, moving to greatness, right? When someone ascends the throne, oh, now we talk that way. They ascend the throne. They're taking their position uh, as, as sovereign, as king or queen, as ruler. And based upon the verbiage that has been used of Jesus, that he is going to have that kind of position... When we see he goes up, he ascends, yeah, he does physically in a normal sense, but, but in, in the, the significant sense, he does that too, in the formal sense. The ascension, he ascends the throne, he assumes rulership as king. Exaltation would be another way to put it. And I'm just such a simpleton and such a public school kid that I never really thought about it. And I know you guys are all 10 times brighter than I am. So you've all thought about it, but I just have to confess to you, I just thought he went up. And I just never really stopped to think about it. Yeah, he went up, but he went up in fulfillment of what he said was going to happen regarding him, what his father said was going to happen regarding him, what prophecy said was going to happen regarding him. He goes up because he goes up to the throne to the right hand of the Father, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Supreme One, He ascends to the throne. I love discovering things for the first time. It's always been there, but you go, duh, what was I thinking? I just never really thought about it. He has to ascend, or He's a liar, because He's been saying that He's going to ascend. Fascinating. So what does it mean for Jesus to ascend? Well, let's answer that with multiple answers. What does it mean for Jesus to ascend? It means, number one, and I won't give you all the numbers, so sorry. Um, it, it means a lot of things. 
for Jesus to ascend means heaven accepts him. Right? And, and by heaven, we, we could say his father accepts him. But heaven certainly accept, accepts him. I like the way Luke puts it there in our text. He was carried up into heaven. And e- even from pagan religions and, and naturalists, and, but you know, heaven is higher. Heaven is where the gods are. Heaven is where supernatural things happen. It's up there. We don't understand it, perhaps. Well, heaven takes him. Now, we do understand it. Well, heaven is where God is. Heaven is where the Father is. The Father accepts him. It's fascinating by now. We learned in chapter 4 last time that the Old Testament accepts him because it's all about him as he, he unpacked it on the road to Emmaus. And the Spirit accepts him because the Spirit raised him from the dead. He doesn't need to accept himself. We don't need to psychoanalyze Jesus. Okay, He knows who he is. But the Father accepts him. All arrows pointing to him as the one. All things pointing to him as the one. He's not an imposter. He's not a fake. He's not a fantasy. He's at the most highly exalted place, the Father's right hand. What does it mean for him to ascend? It also means, here's another big word, it means he's vindicated. He's vindicated. In Luke chapter 22, I'll read from it in a second, the end of Luke 22, Jesus says, in essence, this this is going to happen. I'm a great king and I'll be exalted as a great king. That's so offensive that they put him on trial. They say, that's offensive and we're going to crucify you for saying that. You're a liar. If they would have thought he was telling the truth, they wouldn't have crucified him. They wouldn't have found him guilty. But now he's vindicated because what he said was going to happen actually happens. Okay? Justice is on his side. In Luke chapter 22, verse 69, it it says, But from now on, the Son of Man, Messianic title, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they, they, they kill him for that. But now it's true. He's vindicated. He wasn't making it up. It's actual. As I said earlier, the triumphal entry, as we call it, quote unquote, chapter 19, verse 29, started in Bethlehem, pre-crucifixion, or excuse me, Bethany. Then he's crucified, and now he's in Bethany, and we we don't have the triumphal entry, we have the triumphal departure. Another way of putting this is Jesus enters into his glory. Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Yeah. Necessary that he enters into his glory. Has to happen. I like what one author said, Phil Riken. How about this? A resurrection without an ascension would be unthinkable. According to the plan of God, there needed to be a suitable exaltation of Christ. Raised from the dead. He really did what he said he was going to do. He really conquered the grave. He's been raised from the dead. But he's just going to stay here and uh, no big deal. What's for lunch? 
No, raised from the dead. So what's the one and only fitting thing for him who, who professed to be, who was affirmed to be the Son of Man, the Messiah, the One? Well, he needs to be exalted. He needs to be most highly exalted. He must be most highly exalted, you see. He's got he's to have the ascension to the throne. It's got to be. That's what I was mumbling about earlier and falling over my words about when I was trying to say something along the lines with you can't have the resurrection without the ascension. I should have just said it that way, but I wasn't really ready yet. <sighs> How about this? Think of it in these terms. The, dis- the dissension. The ascension is not only a departure. Right? As others have said, it's an arrival. He's leaving, but it's because he's going somewhere. The place of significance. I just picked up a new Reformation study Bible um, from Emmett in the bookstore yesterday and read the, the portion on the Ascension yesterday, and I, I liked what it said so much I wrote it, a portion in my notes. When Jesus ascended to heaven for his coronation... As king of kings, he was seated at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is the seat of authority. From this position, Jesus rules, administrates his reign, and presides as judge of heaven and earth. I thought that was a good way to kind of encapsulate. And I like the coronation word. There he is. He's in charge. He's the judge. It also said, the ascension marks the moment of Christ's highest point of exaltation prior to his return. Now I want to move beyond, what does it mean for Jesus? How about, what does it mean for Jesus to ascend when it comes to, what does it mean for us? Well, it means, this is cool, you know? It means we're not crazy for believing in Jesus. He said this was going to happen, and it happened, and that's good. But what does it, what does it mean for us, maybe on, on, on other levels? It means He is there for us as our intercessor, uh, as our representative, as the, as the go-between, if you will. He's They're ruling and reigning, yes. But he's there representing everyone. So this would include you if you're a believer. Everyone who would ever believe. He's there. You know, as they say in real estate. Location, location, location. Okay. What it means for you is Jesus is where you need him to be. He's at the right hand of the Father as your advocate, as your mediator, as your high priest, saying, yeah, that one's mine. I lived, died, rose again from the dead on their behalf, and I've ascended to your right hand, and I claim them as my own. And it gets real personal now. You see, we like the ascension. Uh, several texts. I'm going to read from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 7, 1 John chapter 2, um, Hebrews chapter 6. So uh, there's at least three passages, so it might be worth your while to turn there. Um, 
but just some text highlighting the fact that he's our high priest. He's our representative. He's our mediator. And since we sin, and we, we, we don't love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, we need a mediator. We need him to be there. We need him to be there as our advocate, still claiming us as his own. And so in Hebrews chapter 9, great place to start, uh, we read uh, verse 24 of Hebrews 9. There's ascension kind of fingerprints all over this. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ, the Messiah, has entered not into holy places made with hands. It's, talk, it's contrasting the, the, the temple, the, the, the physical temple, um, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. He's entered into heaven itself. We know via the ascension, now to appear in the presence of God, location, 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 on our behalf. And now it's super personal and practical saying he's there and he's entered there and he's there to claim us. So even if you feel far from God and you feel unworthy, which is pretty helpful because it's real. And and you, you realize that that's why Christ is everything because he's there and he's there on our behalf. It's great. It's awesome. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. says, consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since, ah, here's the great part for our sake today, since he always lives, ah, that's because he's been resurrected, he always lives to do what? To make intercession for them. That is saying the same thing in it, essentially. That's wonderful. How does this change our life? How does this change the way we think? How does this change the way we live? Well, it, it deals with your greatest problem, so it changes everything. First John chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate. We, we have an attorney. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. There he is, on our behalf. How about this? So it, 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 it's good for us and it applies to us because he's there as our advocate, as our intercessor. Um, it's also good for us because it guarantees us of our future place there. Still in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. It guarantees, the ascension does, of our future place there, if we're believers. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. Just quickly. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Ah, that's the word I'm loving today. As a forerunner on our behalf. Well, a forerunner means they're going to be afterrunners. Okay? He goes first to one day bring us there where everything is made right. Ascension is great. It also means for us that there's something better for us here and now than if he would have stayed. Which I think is just kind of a hard thing to even say. I'm not really sure I believe it. But I know it's biblical, so i got to get on board. Okay, um, I'm just being honest. 
I mean, I really do believe it, but I don't really know. It just kind of baffles my mind. In John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples that it's better if he leaves. And I'm going, probably like the rest of them. Don't know how that works. I'm being a little facetious, but not altogether facetious. <laughs> I mean, think about it. You want the option? You can have Jesus here, uh, or you can have him gone. I think I'd rather have him here, right? Now, bigger picture, we could say, no, I don't want him here because I actually have a sin problem and I actually need a mediator and I need him to be my high priest. And so it's really good that he's gone. But it's still kind of a rub. It's still complicated. I, I don't totally understand. But it means for you and for me, because I'm going to be biblical today, you came to Omaha Bible Church, that it's better. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. There's going to be a unique ministry of the Holy Spirit that it wouldn't be happening, wouldn't be real, unless Jesus goes. Because when he goes, he sends the Spirit. Okay, we'll come back to that. John 14, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, so this is very earnest, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father, because I'm leaving, he's telling his disciples that. So just back to thinking about John 16, 7. It makes sense because we need him to be there as our advocate, but it also makes sense because we need the Spirit. It also makes even more sense in light of the fact that the Old Testament promises a unique ministry of the Holy Spirit with the coming of the New Covenant. It's extraordinary, unique, special. We think we want Jesus here, but oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ. So it's like He's here. And apparently, according to Him, He tells us the truth, it's better. Now, I don't want to get myself in too much trouble here, and so there's wisdom in few words. But if I'm just going to kind of walk over to the edge and maybe just kind of, you know, just test the waters a little bit, get on a little bit of a branch, I might be willing to say... <laughs> It's better because Jesus bodily is not omnipresent. I'm at least going to test that out. Nobody's thrown a tomato at me yet either. It's the Spirit of Christ whom He gives personally to each one of us who are part of the new covenant. It's better. It's unique, it's special. This is what we've been waiting for. Not the old covenant, that was a type and a shadow. Never to be the, the, the final destination. New covenant realities, according to the book of Isaiah, according to the book of Ezekiel, all these Old Testament texts come with the unique, special, extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit upon everyone who's a believer. That's... Probably enough for me to say. I don't totally understand it. But he didn't leave us as orphans. We're going to talk more about that.
Okay. Jesus did say, I'll, I'll be with you always in the Great Commission. Yeah, no, that's not true. He's gone. He gave us his spirit, the spirit of Christ, as the Holy Spirit is sometimes called. Matthew chapter 18, a church discipline kind of scenario. Jesus is there with us. No, he's not. He's gone. Yeah, he's not there with us bodily, but he sent the Holy Spirit, his spirit, to be there with us and affirming those things. Okay, let's move on. It also means for us that we have spiritual gifts for the maturity of the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So as he is ascending, he's also giving gifts to his church. In the context there, we're not going to go to take the time to go there, but it's to, to bring maturity among believers so that we're not... Um, Gullible, so that we're not easily misled. He's going to give spiritual gifts and gifted people to help us, to equip us. That happens with the ascension. And he has the power to do that because with the ascension, he's the victorious one, the sovereign one. And what happens when kings conquer, then they oftentimes would give gifts. And he gave gifts to his church for our maturity. It also means, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 1, you can turn to Acts chapter 1. The ascension of Jesus means he's returning. He's returning. Acts chapter 1 verse 11 says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This is an ascension account. Why do you stand looking into heaven? Because that's what we would be doing, right? He just ascended and we're going, you know, mouths wide open. Why, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going into heaven. I read between the lines there, get busy. <laughs> he's coming back. It means he's returning. He's returning bodily. And we want him to return bodily because we want him to set everything right. All of the injustice that we see and all of the hurt and all the bad things that we see and we want him to come back and we want him to come back to rule and reign here to fix what's broken. It also means he's not here now bodily, which I've already mentioned. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you always. There I am in your midst. Hebrews chapter 2, he, he sings of the Father to us in our worship. He's very much here, but he's not here bodily. It's important that we remember that. Because he's coming back and that motivates faithfulness. It also keeps us from doing some kind of weird things. A lot of weird things have been done because people think Jesus is here bodily. Weird things happen with views of communion when people think that Jesus is here bodily. Really weird things. Bizarre things. Here's a helpful quote about this. Downplaying the significance of Christ's absence in the flesh, the church has sought various means of substitution. The emperor. Christ on earth. We need him here bodily, so it's the emperor. Eh, that was a mistake. 
is a mistake. The Pope, that's a mistake. Christ on earth, replacing him bodily, you know, that throne should be empty till he comes back. Mary with infant Jesus on her lap, somehow needing to have him here bodily. I'm still reading this quotation. And an elaborate system of church equipment for making Christ bodily present at the ringing of a bell. All these weird things, trying to get him here bodily. He gave us his spirit, we're not orphaned, but he's gone. And he's not coming back until his second coming. And we get ourselves in big trouble when we forget Jesus isn't here. Bodily. Final part of the quotation. Jesus did not downplay his ascension, but comforted his disciples with the promise of the Spirit and his word. You have to remember, I'm going to give you my word, I'm going to give you my spirit, I give you the giftedness. But we, we should live in this reality of but he's not here bodily. But he's going to be here one day bodily. And by the way, I think if we try to connivingly figure out a way for him to somehow be here bodily now, there's going to be a lot of explaining to do. Okay? There's going to be a lot of explaining to do. We're supposed to be waiting, longing, motivated, not passive. Not trying to harness and engineer some sort of thing where we can manipulate people because we have that power. Well, probably I've already said too much about this, but let's go to verse 52. Back to the ascension, back to Luke chapter 24, back to what happened right then and there. It says in Luke 24, 52, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. What does it mean for us? Well, for them, it meant they worshipped. By application, I think it would mean that for us too. What does it mean for us? It means we worship Him. He's not just a prophet. Ascended bodily, which, which puts, puts the, the pass on the fact that He really was who He said He was. Worship is reserved for God, not for human beings. And here they worship. He really is who he said he was. Think about the disciples and all the doubts and all the ins and all the outs and what they thought about Jesus. And now finally, it's just they, they just worship him. He's to be worshipped because who is he? He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And for those of you who are, uh, have never thought that through and we just think of it as these awesome titles. They're awesome titles. But think, there are kings. But he's the king of kings. There are lords. He's the Lord of lords. It doesn't get any higher than Him. And since it doesn't get any higher than Him, it would only be natural for you to do what they did, and that's to worship. He's worthy. The ultimate one who's worthy. The ascension leads to worship. He's unique. He's different. For these guys too, did you notice? They weren't sad. They returned to Jerusalem. They, they went back to get busy worshiping with great joy. 
here all along, they're sad. Jesus is leaving. Jesus is going to be gone. Where's Jesus? This is terrible. He's going to die. No, you're not going to die. It couldn't be. It's the worst thing ever. But now that he's been raised from the dead, and now that he's ascended, it's hallelujah, hallelujah, you know? They have great joy. Now he calls them, calls them his witnesses, his martyrs, where <laughs> we get our word martyr in the Greek text, and it's not going to go well for them. And they're, you know, they might be slow on the uptake sometimes, but they're not stupid regarding what they're walking back into. But they have great joy because they know in whom they have believed and that he is able, right? He is ascended. He's at the right place as mediator. It's going to be okay. Rejoice. Right attitude, regardless of circumstance, is a great way to think about joy. It's happiness, yes, but it's happiness that's, you know, on steroids. I mean, it's, it's happiness that, that, that can even look through the garbage in the trash because you're actually focused not on the here and now. Ultimately, you're focused on the resurrected, ascended Jesus who claims you as his own, and it's joy. It's extraordinary happiness. My happiness is tied to how I feel today or what's going to happen or who's going to say something to me today, and it's more happenstance. This is extraordinary happiness. This is unique. You can't touch this happiness. They have great joy. Ascension should bring us great joy. And then it says in verse 53, and we're continually in the temple blessing God. Why do they do that? Haven't they read the book of Hebrews? <laughs> Just remember, this is all brand new. There's going to be some more water under the bridge. You know? Luke's second volume, which is the book of Acts, is going to help us to see that you know, the key there is transition. Everything is going to change. They go back to doing what they do. What do you do when you want to worship God? What do you want to do when you want to be with other people who worship God? You go to the temple. So they go back to doing what they do. But they won't be doing that very long. Seventy A.D. with the destruction of the temple won't bring a crisis for them, because they know the temple, and His name is Jesus. <laughs> okay. Or you want to look at it from a different vantage point biblically. The Bible says believers are the temple. Don't need to go there anymore. But right here, right now, they just do what they know how to do. And so they do. But they won't do it for very long. Because they've seen the substance. So they don't need to focus on the shadow. Please notice it's not a response of passivity. They're, they're on the move. They're motivated. They have joy that's unspeakable and unstealable. So the ascension is very much a theological thing. Okay? We've talked a lot about theology today. God and how he works. But it does lead them to act certain ways. And so while the ascension doesn't tell you how to get a promotion at work, and it doesn't tell you, you know, how to raise teenagers, and it doesn't tell you how to be a better grandparent or how to be a better husband, 
It's extraordinary. And in a certain way, it helps you through all of those things. It transcends all of those things and then helps you to transcend all of those things. Not that those things aren't important. You do those things because you serve the risen Christ, the ascended Christ. Now all of those things even matter. They do matter. Because you can do it for His glory and for His honor. And no matter what happens here in the here and now, because in one way or another, it eventually all goes bad. You know in whom you have believed. And you know that it's a certainty kind of faith. Because He's the ascended Christ. And it's not faith in faith, faith in fantasy, faith in a phantom. It's the born, lived, died, resurrected, ascended, certain Savior. It started in the temple, Luke's Gospel account. It ends in the temple. Because it's about God and knowing God and Christ fulfilling all of that shadow and preview. So many Christians have heard it so many times. They've said it so many times. But it really is a good statement. On the third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. In light of what we know, maybe what we just learned, I hope we really like those statements. Yes. Yes. Not just as a theological novelty or axiom or dogma. As a personal Savior who did what He did on behalf of those He loved and gave Himself up for. What a Savior we have in Christ. And everyone at Omaha Baptist Church said, Amen. Amen. It's good to pretend sometimes. We say, Amen, right? I agree. This is good. Pray with me if you would.